Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We said last week that when it comes to our transformation, in many ways it works like putting water into a jar. And here's the reason for that. We said last week, if we said, how do we get water out of a jar? You could think of through all kinds of maybe technological ideas to get water out or to get air out of a jar. But the best way to get air out of the jar is to put something else in it, to fill the vase with water. And as it's filled with water, it naturally pushes the air out. We said in many ways, that's a very helpful picture of what transformation looks like in our lives. If you're anything like me, you probably maybe get impatient with yourself. Maybe you even question as to for how much the church speaks of transformation. Is it actually a reality in your life, in my life, or in anybody's life? Not that we have super expectations, But if we really believe that we are made new in Christ, if we literally are transformed, what does that look like? How does that happen? It's easy to speak of it. It's easy to speak some Christianese and talk about transformation. But is that actually a thing? And how does it work? Why does it work so slowly? How comes we don't see more of it than we would like to see? Now this perspective or idea of the air getting pushed out by, being, by water being placed in actually comes from a sermon that was preached over 200 years ago by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. Uh, he lived between 1780 and 1847, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but he preached a message called the expulsive power of a new affection. That's a Big phrase, I get that. Before we get there, let me just mention a couple things. If you've been around Southridge, you know that one of the things that we are passionate about is that God's Holy Spirit is active across all ages, across all centuries, and across all decades. And so sometimes we sing songs that were written literally this year or last year in the last couple of years. Sometimes we sing songs that were written hundreds of years ago, centuries ago. Today we sang Amazing Grace, was written in 1779, over 200 years ago. We sang the doxology, that was written in 1674, it's about 350 years ago. Thomas Chalmers preached this sermon roughly in the early 1800s, so that was some 200 years ago as well. We strongly believe that God's spirit is at work, not just today, but also not just in ancient times, but that God's spirit is always at work in all times and all places. 
And so that's the reason why we sometimes sing songs that were penned centuries ago, because we believe that God's spirit was active in the lives back then, and we can learn something of what they wrote, something of what they taught, that can benefit and strengthen us. But we also believe that God's spirit is at work today, that he's leading songwriters and followers of Jesus to pen great words to songs that we can sing today as well. So if you're around Southridge for a while, you'll notice that we both dive into the ancient, like the Apostles' Creed that we did last week, like the doxology. But then we'll also sing songs that are written in the modern day, the modern era, and read prayers together that are written in the modern era because God's spirit is active across the centuries of time and we learn from one another in a helpful way. Well, Chalmers preached this sermon, as I said, uh, over 200 years ago, and it was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So, big language, but what he was basically saying is this. He's basically saying that if you're going to change, if you're going to be transformed, you can't just sort of take something out. The only way something can be taken out is if something else is put in, and when it's put in, it expels what's already there. When I pour water into the jar, air is expelled And so Chalmers is saying that for us to be transformed, we've got to pour into our lives passion and love and enjoyment and delight in the person of God, and that will expel out the junk in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Here's what he says, quote, it's almost never done by force of mental determination. He says, transformation is never done by force of mental determination. Now, it's kind of interesting because this is actually the way most of us are accustomed to thinking that we're supposed to change. What we just determine. I work on it. I discipline myself. And I simply determine to change. He goes on. He says this. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. In other words, he says determination cannot destroy what needs to be destroyed. He says if you're going to change, if you're going to be transformed, he says this is not the way to do it. But quite honestly, it's probably the way most of us are accustomed to thinking about how to change our lives. We determine to do it. We determine to destroy what needs to be destroyed. He says, instead of that, it's got to be dispossessed. He says, the only way you can change is not by determining to destroy something. The only way that you can change is by what needs to be destroyed for it to be dispossessed. For it to be expelled out of your life by something else placed in to take its place. Man, if you get your mind and heart wrapped around it, it really is life-changing because most of us use the pattern of determining to destroy. And Chalmers, 200 years ago, two centuries ago, saying, no, it's not the way that it works. What's in you has to be dispossessed. Sometimes you've been around here, me, around here, you've heard me say this. If I were to tell you 
don't think of pink elephants. Uh, right away, as long as I remind you, don't think of pink elephants, don't think of pink elephants, don't think of pink elephants. What do you think of? You think of pink elephants. The more I tell you to determine not to think of pink elephants, you automatically think of pink elephants. Determination doesn't work. The only way for you to not think of pink elephants is to do what? Think of gray ones. Think of the real ones. You can't determine not to think of pink. You can't destroy your thoughts of pink elephants by trying to determine to destroy that thought. You can't do it because the more you try to remember to destroy it, the more you end up thinking about it. The only way for you to think, to not think of pink elephants, is to dispossess that thought by thinking of real ones. The only way for you to determine not to think of pink elements is for that to be expelled from your life, to expel from your brain by thinking of gray ones. That's the way transformation works. It doesn't work by determination. It doesn't work by willpower. It doesn't work by trying harder. Instead, something else needs to be poured in for that to be expelled. Here's what he says. He goes on. The most effectual way of, withdra- of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away upon desolate and unpeopled vacancy. So he says the best way to draw your mind away from some kind of object is not by simply trying to make your mind desolate of anything. It's not by simply trying to create a vacuum in your life. Instead, he says, but by presenting to its regards another object still more alluring. So he says the best way to change isn't by trying to make your mind desolate and blank and empty, but instead, giving your heart, giving your mind, giving your being something that's more alluring, something that's more winsome, something that's more delighting. Here's what he says. When it comes to the influence of the, of the world, he says, quote, we shall never be able to arrest any of its leading pursuits by a naked demonstration of their vanity. If you've been around Southridge periodically, you know we certainly bring critique to some of the cultural influences that we have, some of the influences of darkness in our lives. But if you've been around Southridge, you know that we try as best as we can not to rant and rail about things that are wrong in our world or maybe even in our lives. Why? It's not because we're afraid to do that. It's not because we're afraid of getting criticized. It's because we believe ranting and railing does not bring about transformation. I mean, it's actually theologically, theologically informed as to why we don't really rant and rail like you may hear in a lot of other places in our culture, newscasts, podcasts, whatever. People rant and rail. The reason that you don't hear that so much at Southridge, it's not because we're afraid to do that, but it's because we don't think ranting and railing actually brings about transformation. We shall never be able to arrest any of its leading pursuits by a naked demonstration of their vanity. So I can stand up here and talk as long as I want about the horrors of evil and darkness and of a naked demonstration of their vanity, and it's not going to change you. It'll make you feel guilty. It'll make you feel horrible about yourself. It'll make you know that you need to change, but it's not going to change you. 
We can preach a naked demonstration of the vanity of a lot of evil stuff. And it's not going to change you a lick. It'll make you feel horrible. It'll make you feel guilty. It's not going to change you. But here's what he says. It is quite in vain to think of stopping one of these pursuits in any way else but by stimulating to another. He says, the only way that's going to be effective is if you're actually stimulated to something else. Preaching the naked determination of the vanity of what we shouldn't be doesn't change you. It's got to instead be accompanied by the allure of something else. The fact of the matter is you're a hungry person. He goes on to say this. This is the grasping tendency of the human heart. I love this. It must have a something to lay hold of. He says, your heart is starved. It's hungry. Your heart has got to eat. Your being has to eat. And which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. The heart must have something to cling to. I'm a little guy, but if you know me or you can ask people who do, like, I ate a lot. Like, for a little guy, like, I can kind of put it away. And uh, so, like, I love to eat. If you're a human being, you probably love to eat. You know what it is to be hungry. And when you're hungry, you've got to have something to eat. And you kind of don't want something, you know, that'll just do. You want something delicious. You want something, you want something that delights to your taste buds. And so Chalmers is saying, your soul operates the exact same way. In fact, that's why God made us that way. He made us physically to mirror who we are spiritually. And so anytime you're physically hungry, it's a reminder you're a spiritually hungry being as well. You're famished. Your soul is looking for something to cling to. Your soul is looking for a feast. Your being is looking for something to satisfy it. And so many times, the way that we process change, often in, on, in a church or among followers of Jesus, is to stop doing something. And Chalmers, 200 years ago, says, no, that's like trying to get the air out of a vase and using all kinds of technology to do it. But the only way that you can bring transformation and get the air out is to actually pour something else in. It's got to be dispossessed. You can't simply determine it. You can't simply destroy it. It's got to be dispossessed. We're in a series in Ephesians 1. And in this series, we're looking at some of the core aspects of what we believe as followers of Jesus. Ephesians 1, it talks about Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the first few verses. But we also are looking at that not in a way that's just sort of dry, obsolete, dusty theology, but we're saying how can what Paul teaches, doctrine, the core of what we believe, how does that dispossess the other stuff in our lives so that transformation can be real and genuine. I'm going to ask Dennis to come up and he's going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Often around Southridge, I make this comment. 
We want gospel-shaped hearts and minds that lead to gospel-directed actions and attitudes. Gospel-shaped hearts and minds lead to gospel-directed actions and attitudes. That's why, as we said last week, in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul only tells them to do one thing. And the one thing is to remember who they're not supposed to be. It's the only thing he tells them to do. Chapters 1 through 3 only gives them one command. In chapters 4 through 6, he gives them 40 commands. Why? Because in chapters 1 through 3, he's saying, I want you to have gospel-shaped hearts and minds. I want the beauty of the gospel to dispossess the junk that's in your being. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he gives them all kinds of actions and attitudes, knowing that that's only based on having a gospel-shaped hearts and minds. Naturally, we're prone. Hey, tell me what to do. Tell me the action items. Tell me what I'm supposed to get done. Before you ever get there, Paul says it's massively important to have a gospel-shaped heart and mind. For the junk to be dispossessed by the beauty of who God is and his truth. So when Dennis, is, Dennis reads Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, as we said last week, it's one giant run-on sentence. Uh, Paul never takes a breath, so Dennis is going to read 3 through 14 without ever taking one breath. Just kidding. <laughs> It's one giant sentence. And so we're not covering all these verses today. uh, But as Dennis reads, just lock in your mind. This is really one sentence. It's one sentence that's incredibly theologically thick, has huge levels of content, incredibly doctrinally deep. And yet Paul's not dusty. It's not stale. His life literally explodes in joy and praise and thankfulness. And so it's actually intended to make us alive, to make our beings more alive as the humans that we are. So Dennis, if you want to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Praise be to God, the Father, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. 
Thank you, Dennis. We're going to uh, run through this again. Again, we're not going to, we're just going to touch a couple of these verses. Uh, in Ephesians 1 4, we looked at this last week. Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul says this If you belong to Christ through faith, you've been chosen. That you're not sitting here by accident. In fact, I would say there's not one single person in this room. It's not one single person watching online who is simply doing this on your own. If you have any, 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 any inclination at all for any interest in God whatsoever, it's actually a work of God's Holy Spirit. If there's anything in your being that inclines you to desire to know who this God is, it's a work of God's Holy Spirit. If you belong to Christ through faith, you've been chosen. Have you ever thought about it? You're his. You know, I remember, you know, recess times in high school, and you can probably recall this. I don't know how old you are, but you might be able to recall this if you did that kind of thing. Like, it was kind of a scary moment when teams picked their players. Some of you maybe have never been chosen for anything. You know, in recent years, the participation awards have gone up, and you know, if you just do anything, you get a participation reward or participation trophy, whatever that looks like. Listen, maybe we've taken that too far, but what I can tell you is this. That's in response to the real pain of not being chosen or winning. Maybe we've taken it too far, but it is a response to the pain of not belonging. God says, you've been... You've been chosen. You belong to me. Certainly there's mystery in how all of that works. Kyle Snodgrass says this, salvation is entirely a work of God in which humans are totally involved. I love it. It's entirely a work of God in which human beings are totally involved. If God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, we do not stand isolated from him in making a decision for him. God is the one who works in and through us, even as we choose him. Yes, God calls you to respond to him. Yes, God calls you to have faith. But even that response in the big scheme of things is held in God's hands. Paul goes on in Ephesians 1.6. And by the way, as we go through these verses, notice all the words that I underlined that simply are just brimming with joy and delight. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul just amps up language of beauty, of goodness, of delight to picture the love of God toward you. The Father is a God of extravagant love. He's taken on himself the initiative to act for your well-being, for you to belong to him. 
Through Christ, he's adopted you into his family. Last week I mentioned we had a memorial service here on Saturday a week ago. And the woman who shared was the daughter of the parents who were deceased about a year ago. And she gave comments literally standing right here. She commented on what her adoption meant, not just to her, but her parents. And asked her for her to send me a couple of the words this week, and she did. And here's just a little excerpt from what she said. The adoption story behind the expansion of our family, again, this is a eulogy she gave on behalf of both of her parents that both passed away within about a week of each other a year ago. She said, the adoption behind the expansion of our family is one my mom loves to tell. Don't you love that? In other words, her mom, who is now deceased, loved to tell the story of her daughter's adoption. Loved to tell the story of how her daughter belonged to her. About traveling to Paraguay on Easter Sunday, when she gave me my pink blow-up bunny, and the ridiculous and the rigorous adoption process they went through to get me. So her moms love to tell the story of traveling to Paraguay Easter Sunday. Love telling about the little pink blow-up bunny, about the rigorousness of the adoption process. Love to tell that story because now this was their girl. She was so excited to have a little girl. And my father was impressed with my long fingers. He was so sure I'd end up playing the piano, but my hobby was enthusiastically geared toward the need for speech, as he was actually more interested in racing and those kinds of things. But her story was, here's how excited my parents were about adopting me. Here's the rigorous process they went through for me to belong to them. Decades later, even after it happened, her mom and dad delighted to tell the story of the day they got her. And God's delighted in your adoption story as well. The verse says, it gives him pleasure. He's not like, oh man, like what did I bring home? Oh man, like what did I get? Oh man, like I'm a redeemer, but I didn't mean to redeem this mess. He's delighted. He has his pleasure. He remembers fondly his adoption of you. It's his will. It's not a passing thought. It's not accidental. It's intentionally chosen. There's praise. There's exuberance. It's not just grace. It's glorious grace. It's bountiful. It's freely given. He's not trying to get anything out of the deal. All he gets is you, but it's freely given. It's given in the one he loves. Verse, chapter 1, verse 6, talks a little bit about the means by which God brings about that adoption. God the Father initiates. He plans God the Son, the person of Jesus, executes the plan and actually becomes the means by which you become his. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. That's the way that you're adopted. That's the way you belong back to God. In accordance with his pleasure and will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It's through Jesus Christ. It's in the one he loves. That's the means by which God could make you his own. And friends, listen, it cost him something. Remember a few years ago, I went out to Colorado to do some hiking with Steve Parker and some of their family members. And I remember him chatting with me, and it was like something I really never had run into before. He said, hey, um, I forget what the amount we paid, but you kind of like paid to get these cards. And what the cards essentially were was insurance that once you got out there, and if when you did some hiking, you were stranded on some back end of the mountain, that the card was literally insurance that you had made a contribution or you had paid so that the cost of your rescue would be covered. It was literally kind of like an insurance plan. Listen, friends, every time something hits the news about, you know, some guy needing to be rescued on Everest, or a little while back it was some guy, I think thousands of feet below the earth, I forget, was it Afghanistan, Pakistan, somewhere over there. I mean, it was like way, way, way down there. And the question is, is what's the question? Who's going to pay? Everybody wants them rescued. Who's going to pay? Whose taxes pay for this rescue? If you get stranded out in the ocean, who's going to pay? Who's going to fit the bill, foot the bill for your rescue? Who's going to foot the bill if you're some, on the back end of some mountain in Colorado? Who pays for that? Somebody picks up the tab, and there's usually a pretty big debate on who that is because it's expensive, it's costly, and somebody's got to pay. Listen, it's costly. It's expensive for you to be adopted into God's family. Somebody's got to pay. And the message of scripture is, you and I fall far short. There's no way that we can make that payment. There's no way that we can earn adoption. There's no way that we can earn our way back into God's family. Somebody's got to pay. And it's not you. It's not your religiosity. It's not your going to church. It's not your reading your Bible and praying every day. It's not you serving at church. But somebody's got to pay. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who pays. Jesus is the one who pays for your adoption. Jesus is the one who picks up the tab for your rescue. And it wasn't cheap. It cost him his life. Jesus is both God and man. As a man, he can pay for, all, for human beings because he can stand in for us. As God, he can pay for all who embrace him. Kyle Snodgrass again says this, grace is God's coming alongside us to embrace us and work for our benefit. Grace is the judge of the universe asking criminals to sit down to a meal in his home. The initiative always belongs to God who grants people the gift of eternal life in Christ. Grace 
is not some sort of package that God gives us. Rather, grace is God giving us himself. Grace is not giving is God not God giving us a toy box. Grace is literally God giving us himself. Grace is God giving us relationship with him. Grace is God welcoming us into his family. Grace is God adopting you and somebody's got to pay and the person who pays is Jesus. In a moment we're going to appropriately be celebrating communion. And communion is a time where we take a wafer and a cup of juice. And they're reminders that somebody paid. It's Jesus' broken body. It's his poured out blood that pays for your rescue from darkness. That pays for your rescue from isolation. And it's the beauty of that truth that it's been paid for, the beauty of truth that you belong to him that dispossesses the stuff in your life. The anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the arrogance, the pride, the lust, the greed, the fear. The only way for that to be transformed is for the beauty and delight of the truth of the gospel that Jesus paid to be poured in. As we take communion, it's not important that you are a member of Southridge. We simply ask that you belong to Jesus, that you have actually embraced the price that he paid for him to belong to you. We take a cup of juice that reminds us of his shed blood. We take a piece of broken cracker that reminds us of his broken body. And as we take them together, we're reminded that somebody paid. Somebody paid for your rescue. Somebody paid for your redemption. Somebody paid for your adoption. And the beauty of that truth dispossesses our inadequacy, our guilt, our fear, our arrogance, our pride, our self-sufficiency. So I'll invite you up in sections. You can take a cup of juice and a wafer back to your seat. There's some stations in the aisles and the balconies as well. And as you take those elements with you, in your hands you're holding a reminder of payment, of what it cost to adopt you, to redeem you. The only way that the God in heaven could have pleasure in having you 
is by the cost of his son. So you walk under the umbrella of God's great pleasure, his great love, and his great joy. And you walk under the umbrella of his great cost. Why don't we have this section here, this far right section. If you could move to one of the stations balcony, you can go to the stations up in the balcony. Take the cup of juice, the wafer back to your seat, and then we'll take it together. other sections can go. Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, and I want you to take note of this word, in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, one thing we know Paul is not saying, he's not saying do this and mentally remember what happened to Jesus. I mean, the people who crucified Jesus remembered it. Hundreds of people did. So so Paul is not saying Merely 
intellectually remember that Jesus died on a cross. It's the furthest thing from his mind. When the people of Israel in the Old Testament were told to remember their release from Egypt, they, we know, they knew it intellectually. It was in their brain. When Paul says remember, when the people in the Old Testament were told to remember, it was actually to go back in time with their imagination and recall the reality of what Jesus' death brought about. The people of Israel were to go back in their imagination to the land of Egypt and remember the reality of what it felt like to be rescued from slavery. And so the goal isn't just, oh yeah, like I remember in my gray matter. No, it's, it's more than your gray matter. It's the remembering needs to dispossess the not remembering. The remembering needs to dispossess the bondage of living in fear. The bondage of living as an orphan. The bondage of living with unforgiveness. You're called, you're more than a meat machine. You're a being. And so as we take these elements, we're going to do more than just remember with our beings. We're going to allow the truth, the reality of being loved, being paid for, being adopted. We're going to allow that to dispossess the fear, the inadequacy, the pride, the independence, the self-sufficiency of our lives. So let's take the wafer and juice together and let's remember with all of our beings. Let's stand as we sing this last song together.
of your love the costliness of your grace may that dispossess whatever in our lives that needs to be gotten rid of may it dispossess fear may it dispossess resentment may it dispossess our dullness pride or arrogance. May it dispossess our self-sufficiency. Thank you that we, through Jesus, are adopted into your family. We thank you for Father who initiated the plan of salvation. For the son who executed it by coming to this earth and being crucified. For the Holy Spirit who makes it alive in our beings. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. We'd love to pray for you. Our prayer team is down here to the right. Uh, God bless. Have a wonderful day.